Extremist group leaders from Florida and the role they played in the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol. This is the Florida Roundup from WLRN Public Media in Miami and WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville. I'm Tom Hudson. My co-host, Melissa Ross, is off this week. Tweets and messages from leaders of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers in Florida played a central role during this week's congressional hearing into the attack at the Capitol. More people from Florida face charges from the attack than from any other state. Why has Florida become a hotspot for these extremist groups and others who took part in the insurrection? Plus, Florida's election chief, who has refused to say Joe Biden won the election, commits to certifying the state's election results this fall, regardless of who wins. Our laws are followed. I don't think Floridians need to worry about our election being certified in 2022. You can join our conversation, 305-995-1800. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com. Welcome to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. Thanks for supporting public broadcasting in your community. In Miami, I'm Tom Hudson. My co-host, Melissa Ross, is off this week. What may be the final hearing of the Congressional Committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is scheduled for Thursday night in the week ahead. It will focus on what President Donald Trump was doing as his supporters were breaking through police barriers and storming the Capitol building while Congress was meeting to certify the Electoral College results of the 2020 election. This week's hearing was concentrated on the planning of January 6th, extremist groups, and what the committee said were tied were ties between the groups and former President Trump. Florida played a central role. Orlando area Democratic Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy helped lead the hearing. Early in the morning of December 19th, the president sent out a tweet urging his followers to travel to Washington, D.C. for January 6th. Be there. We'll be wild, the president wrote. And Florida is home to extremist groups that the committee showed evidence of were involved in planning after President Trump sent that tweet. This is Maryland Democrat Jamie Raskin during this week's hearing. This includes language that some listeners may find inappropriate. December 19th at 10.22 a.m., just hours after President Trump's tweet, Kelly Meggs, the head of the Florida Oath Keepers, declared an alliance among the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, and the Florida Three Percenters, another militia group. He wrote, we have decided to work together and shut this shit down. We will talk about the role the committee says Floridians played in planning and carrying out the January 6th attack and how Florida is a focus for extremist groups. Have you been following the January 6th committee hearings? What do you think about what's been presented so far? Republican, Democrat, NPA? We want to hear from you. Same phone number for everybody. If you've tuned out, if you're not paying attention, why not? Let us know. 305-995-1800. 305-995-1800. We're all Floridians, and that's why it's the same phone number for everybody. Same Twitter handle as well, at Florida Roundup on Twitter. Terry sent us this note as we're getting ready for the program here today. This ought to be a dandy topic. Indeed, Terry, it ought to be a dandy topic and one that may be difficult to hear for some folks, but it will remain civil here on the Florida Roundup. 305-995-1800. 
You can also tweet us at Florida Roundup. Now, this week, the committee heard from one witness who said he was motivated to travel to Washington because he believed the 2020 election was stolen. He now said he knows that was a lie. Have you dealt with what's become known as the big lie? 305-995-1800. We invited Florida Representative Stephanie Murphy to our program. She declined our invitation. We also reached out to the following members of the Florida congressional delegation who voted to overturn the 2020 election results. Matt Gates, Carlos Jimenez, Brian Mast, Bill Posey, and John Rutherford. We did not hear back from any of them. Let's talk about this now with Antonio Fins, political uh, politics and growth editor of the Palm Beach Post and USA Today Florida Network. He joins us here on Zoom. Antonio, welcome to the program. Thanks for sharing some reporting with us. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. You really looked at some of these extremist groups that were front and center of the uh, hearing this week for the January 6th uh, Congressional Committee. Tell us a little bit about these groups and, and the role that the committee members think that they played from Florida in planning for the attacks or planning well, for the demonstrations. Un- unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, Tom, a lot of these extremist groups are, are pretty familiar to us. The uh, Proud Boys, Enrique Tarillo, the leader of the Proud Boys, is a Miami resident. Uh, when you look at the Oath Keepers, the Florida Oath Keepers leader, you know, uh, Kelly Meggs from uh, Dunnelan, Florida, is, is another Florida resident. And then you've got two of the central players in linking these guys up with the White House ultimately in this, in the, what happened on January 6th were Mike Flynn, the former National Security Advisor who lives in Sarasota, and Roger Stone from Fort Lauderdale. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a complete, you know, almost all roads lead through Florida on this. And then the Proud Boys and the Old Keepers are two extremist groups. The, the Proud Boys claim that they are, you know, uh, Western chauvinist, but a lot of it is talk for what comes down to white nationalism and, and white supremacy. There was a little bit uh, of, well, more than a little bit, but there certainly was some exploration of the role of uh, of, of race and racism with some of these groups during that uh, committee hearing uh, this week. How much of this is in Florida versus this is just the state that these uh, leaders happen to call home? Well, I think if you're looking at how many, let's just look at the number. You know, there are, I think at the committee hearing on Tuesday, they mentioned there have been more than 800 arrests related to what happened, the violence at the Capitol that day, of which, you know, 94 of those arrests, so more than 10%, came from Florida. Mm. And of the 94 Florida arrests, 16 were Proud Boys and 13 were Oath Keepers. So, we're looking at it's not just a coincidence there these groups tend to be in florida uh they they tend to have a presence here and not by coincidence this is where you know former president trump political bases and where his now his legal residence is as well share with us uh the the presence the public presence of these groups in Florida, the, the the committee presented uh, a lot of evidence, some of it from encrypted communications, uh, you know, secretive, uh, uh, protected, password protected kinds of communications from these groups that they got through subpoenas and other means. But what about the public presence? Would Floridians would 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 a neighbor know, for instance, if someone of these uh, uh, a member of these groups was living down the block or next door or if they worked with somebody, for instance? 
They probably do, but if they don't, they might want to show up at a school board meeting, a city commission meeting, a county commission meeting. These guys have been around now for a number of years here. Uh, we started running across them in our reporting, both in Sarasota and around the state. We, we started running across them as early as 2018. Hmm. Uh, back then, the, the real, real clamor was about QAnon. The QAnon adherents were showing up at, at all these political events. But soon after, I would say in about t- late 2018 into 2019, the Proud Boys that were in Orlando the day that uh, then-President Trump announced that, you know, formally declared his, his 2020 candidacy. Um, when the pandemic hit and you had, you know, school boards deciding on a mask mandate, the Proud Boys are usually there. Um, I, I personally did not come across a lot of Oath Keepers, but Proud Boys, school board meetings, county commission meetings, that's where they were. They really showed up in, in, in frequently. Then you had, I believe it was, during some of the recounts um, and some of those, you, you would have some of these groups show up even picketing and protesting outside, you know, public, the homes of public officials. Um, so they, you may not know that your neighbors won, but if you out there long in the, in the public sphere long enough in the public arena, you will come across them and you'll see them. Antonio Fins is with us, a reporter here in Florida for the USA Today Florida Network and uh, covers politics and growth for the Palm Beach Post. 305-995-1800. Jim and Quinn and Steve, we'll get to your phone calls just as soon as we can. You can also send us your thoughts on Twitter at Florida Roundup is our Twitter handle. We're talking about the central role that Florida played this week in the January 6th congressional hearing. Uh, The uh, Orlando Democrat Stephanie Murphy was one of the two leads of the presentation and then uh, also presenting plenty of evidence, lots of evidence from people in Florida, uh, from extremist groups, individuals that were involved with uh, with planning some activities on January 6th, which led to the attack on the Capitol. The the, uh, expected final hearing from the Congressional Committee, or what may be the final hearing, is expected on Thursday night in the week ahead. 305-995-1800. Regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, we want to hear from you. Same phone number for all of us here on the Florida Roundup, 305-995-1800, and at Florida Roundup on Twitter. Antonio, one of the witnesses uh, uh, that we heard from and that the committee heard from this week who has since left one of the extremist groups, talked about his concerns going forward about the role of these extremist groups in politics and in voting. You mentioned uh, that uh, that some Floridians, uh, members of these groups, have been you know, very present in some public meetings, as is their right as a citizen and a resident to show up at a public meeting. Uh, what does your reporting tell you about the role and in ongoing influence or ongoing role of these groups in the 2022 election cycle here in Florida? School board elections, uh, municipal elections, statewide elections are on the ballot in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, they're, they're going to be pre- very prevalent and um, in many cases uh, connected and just uh, very supportive of a lot of the candidates that are running. I think that the change that we have seen, look, and I, I've been covering or involved in politics, covering politics for more than 40 years. And when I first got into this, you know, the extremist group on the right was, was the John Birch Society. And yeah, they were out there and they had the right to speak out, but they were kind of, you know, as a fringe out there on the outer rim of the political universe. And what has changed now is that 
these extremist groups have a seat at the table. They, they are very much part of the political arena. They, they are part of the lexicon. They're, they're part of the entire, the way that their policy is decided. And like you said, they have a right to do so. But what crosses the line is that rather than having just simply a voice that you come to the table with an idea and you express your idea, and then that idea gets adopted, which is the way it should work if you're successful, mm-hmm. the fear is, and what I have seen, what we a lot of us have covering this have seen, is an intimidating factor behind it. That it's not just about, hey, I want to be heard. It is about hear me out and do what I want or else. And I think that's what is alarming. That is what's disconcerting. And that is what you saw on January 6th at the Capitol. It wasn't, hey, we, we lost the election. Okay, we felt that the election, there was irregularities in the voting. We went to the courts. The courts threw out 60 of the 61 lawsuits. And the one that, that did get heard and did get, you know, did get approved, it was a minor thing. It wasn't anything that would have changed the outcome of anything, of any result. But... Rather than that, and then concede the election, no, they went to the Capitol, they stormed the Capitol, they engaged in violence, horrific violence, to get their way. And that, that's what the, what's the problem here. It's not that you have people with, you know, views from that may not be mainstream. It is that the way they seek to get those views across and get them implemented in policy, that's what's, what's disturbing and alarming. Terry sends us uh, this tweet. These extremists are a huge threat to democracy. They are capable of fueling an insurgency. 305-995-1800. Quinn is listening along in Port St. Lucie. Quinn, thanks for listening and calling. Go ahead. You're on the radio. Hi. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I just wanted to uh, make a comment that um, it's often said, especially it's been kind of presented in the hearings, that ideological group, as in they have a chain of command, they generally agree on things, uh, they're somewhat organized, but that's not really the case with the modern militia movement. It never really has been. Um, In the hearings, uh, Stuart Rhodes and Kelly Meggs were brought up a lot, um, and that's interesting because, uh, especially with Kelly Meggs, that supposed alliance between Oath Keepers and Free Percenters and uh, Proud Boys, the committee did not present anything, and I have not seen anything anywhere else, that really showed that that materialized in any way. Uh, these groups are not that organized. They infight a lot. They split over the smallest um, differences. And that's really the mistake I think that's being made talking about a lot of it. There's this instinct that people have to try to codify them um, and treat them like uh, either political parties mm-hmm. or like militant terrorist groups. And really, that's not going to work. So you uh, think the, the concern, for instance, that Terry voices on Twitter is, is overblown because you don't see these groups as very well organized or even in agreement and uh, pulling on the same oar for their ideology. I wouldn't say that. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I want to downplay the seriousness okay. of it, really. I, okay. I wouldn't say that. Um, but they do broadly agree on a lot of things, that's true. But when it comes to rubber meets the road, these groups doing things, whether it be you know showing up at school board meetings or, God forbid, actual violent acts, 
they just do not have that capacity right now. Mm. And trying to investigate and codify them as if, as if they did, I think, is counterproductive. Uh, there's, if we want to counter this, it's got to be on not a law enforcement uh, kind of elimination of these groups level, but it's got to be a broader, more individual approach. Quinn, I appreciate you uh, adding your voice there from Point St. Lucie, Port St. Lucie here on the Florida Roundup. Jim has been listening in and uh, patient on line four in Jacksonville. Go ahead, Jim. We want to hear from you. Uh, Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I have a very serious concern about uh, membership in groups like these, uh, three percenters, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, among the members of our uh, first responder community. Uh, I noticed that before the January 6th attack, many of the local uh, first responders that live around me uh, were openly carrying uh, bumper stickers and whatnot, uh, showing their allegiance to these groups. I had a fireman in my neighborhood uh, after the Capitol attack flying his three percenter flag. Mm. And just like the United States military has begun a review of uh, possible membership in these groups among members of the military, I think it is uh, incumbent on our elected officials, uh, the administrators of our uh, first responder communities, and uh, the news media to investigate um, active participation uh, in these groups among the members, uh, either in uh, the direct support of the attack on the Capitol, uh, the support on the attack on the Capitol, or uh, membership in a community that literally is trying to tear apart the very government that feeds their families through our taxpayer uh, paychecks. Jim, you bring up a, a really uh, important point to consider here, and let me put that to Antonio Fins, who has done some reporting about this. What do we know about the membership ranks of these organizations? Uh, as we heard from um, Quinn and others, maybe more loosely organized than perhaps portrayed, but the membership in terms of folks who are in law enforcement who also count themselves as members of these extremist groups. Yeah, look, that's that he's right on front and point. I mean, that is a concern. And if you saw the news in the last day, what has happened with the Secret Service text messages from January 5th and January 6th um, and the disappearance of those text messages, Mm -hmm. that also raises another major question about what they were communicating about. So I, yeah, I, I think that that is something that is an area of a lot of, that has not, he's right, it, it's not been, uh, it's not been pursued. Part of the reason is that a lot of these, believe it or not, police agencies tend not to be very transparent. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, so I, I just, uh, it's, it's an area of concern that it needs to take a look at. I wouldn't draw a broad brush from it. Um, you know, the uh, law enforcement officers take an oath. I think it's as a citizenry, we have to respect the fact that they're going to live by that oath. But nonetheless, the fact that you've seen these anecdotal displays, I think, is is definitely of concern and needs to be looked at. Antonio Fins covers politics and growth for the Palm Beach Post and the USA Today Florida Network. Antonio, always a pleasure. Thanks for sharing your reporting with us here. Thank you, Tom. Uh, More phone calls to come. Be patient with us. Lots to uh, talk about here today on this topic and others. 305-995-1800 at Florida Roundup on Twitter. Uh, Boulder Hermit sent us this note. The uh, an irony is counter protesters who could show up to oppose the Proud Boys, three percenters, etc. are broadly called Antifa 
And thanks to mass negative branding, they can't really do that without getting dogpiled by the uh, mass media, is what uh, they write there. Uh, Kathleen shares, I absolutely would not miss these hearings. Your thoughts at Florida Roundup on Twitter. Still more to come here on Florida Public Radio on the Florida Roundup. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday, and we appreciate your support of public media. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, Florida family-owned and operated since 1936, and a proud supporter of public radio. ABC Fine Wine and Spirits. Always be celebrating. We're back on the Florida Roundup on this Friday, live throughout the state of Florida. Great to be along with you in Miami. I'm Tom Hudson. My co-host, Melissa Ross, is off this week. Today we're talking about the central role Florida played in this week's January 6th congressional hearing. Orlando Democratic Representative Stephanie Murphy was one of the two members leading the hearing, which featured evidence of Florida-based leaders of extremist groups preparing for January 6th and the connections they had to the Trump White House. Your phone call is coming up in a few minutes, so be patient with us. Hold on the line if you're there. We do want to hear from you. 305-995-1800. If you got to go quick, send us a quick note on Twitter, at Florida Roundup is our handle there. We'll return to the issue of Florida and extremist groups uh, in a moment. But first, the 2020 election continues to influence changes to voting. Several states, including Florida, passed new voting restrictions, and Florida created a new police force focused on election crimes. The person who's leading the state's election process this cycle is Secretary of State Cord Byrd. He has described President Biden as the certified president and has pointed to what he calls irregularities in the voting in 2020 from other states. Secretary of State Byrd spoke with WLRN's Wilkin Brutus earlier this week. Secretary Byrd, election integrity is a nationwide topic, obviously. Uh, the, the hearings on the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol have certainly grabbed the attention of voters. You've cited irregularities in the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Arizona. There has been no evidence accepted by courts of what you call irregularities. Do you think it's important for a, a state elections official to recognize the rule of law and the role of the judicial system? Well, it is. And I will and I will correct you on one thing. Just uh, just last week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court made a ruling that the Wisconsin Election Committee, Committee uh, Commission violated Wisconsin law when it allowed drop boxes to be placed um, around the state against state law. Only the legislature could do that. That is an election irregularity. Those are the type of irregularities that I was talking about when I answered that question. And those are the types of things that undermine voters' confidence in the system, which is why here in Florida and in the legislature, the reason we updated the laws is because we're not resting on our laurels. We can look around the country, see different things that are going on, see things that we could do better, quite frankly, and try to correct those. Uh, so uh, you know, I, I can't speak to what other states have done. I, I, I read, I can read the Supreme Court opinion, what happened in Wisconsin. But what I want to assure voters in Florida is that when they go, that our laws are followed, that they're secure when they go to cast their ballot, that our infrastructure is secure, and where people are breaking the law, we're going to uh, investigate it. In regards to other elected officials, when voters see that, do you believe citing irregularities that no court has found undermines trust in the judicial branch itself? I don't listen. We have we have a process in our country. Um, we have three branches of government and uh, the, the courts have looked at some of these things. I mean, I'm not going to get into I probably don't have the time to get into 
um, all of the court cases that have been sure. filed. But there's no question that that in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, their laws were not followed. In Wisconsin, we now have the Wisconsin Supreme Court. So I'm respecting that court that said our laws were broken during the last election. So we're looking forward in Florida. And that's the emphasis that I want to put on this and, and let voters know that, you know, 2020 is behind us. We're looking forward. We're looking ahead. And my job is to make sure that we build on our success from 2020 and have a, uh, have a, a, a fair, transparent, and legitimate election in Florida. You have refused to acknowledge Joe Biden uh, legitimately won the 2020 election. Do you believe President Biden was legitimately elected to office in 2020? So, Wilkin, let, let's be clear. We have a constitutional process in which we resolve these types of issues. We could go into the history of, we could go back to 2000. It is not uncommon for one side or the other to take issue with the results of an election. But fortunately, in our constitution, we have a a way to verify that, and that is through the electoral college. That is through the state certifying their election. That is what happened. Congress certified President Biden as the president, and I accept him as the president. Uh, will you commit to certifying the election of a Democrat for governor if the Democrat receives more legal votes by the deadline to certify that election? A- absolutely. I mean, that's not even that's not even on our radar is non-certification. If our laws are followed, which I expect all of our partners in the 67 supervisors of election around the state to follow the law, uh, I, I don't think Floridians need to worry about our election being certified in 2022. Secretary Byrd, Pete Antonacci was recently appointed by Governor DeSantis to oversee the uh, uh, Office of Election Crimes and Security, which is essentially a watchdog agency for elections. 2020 elections in the state of Florida went smoothly, though. That's a broad consensus. What threats are you currently seeing in our upcoming elections in Florida and why this additional security? You are correct. We now have an Office of Election Crimes and Security in the state of Florida. Uh, that was a priority of uh, Governor DeSantis because, you know, we want to ensure that there, our elections are fair, transparent, and legitimate. We have election laws on the books, and nothing undermines um, any law more than a law that's not enforced. And so some of these things have been going on uh, within the Secretary of State's office, but because elections are a complex mix of federal and state law, the thought of the legislature and the governor is to have a dedicated unit uh, that investigates and where necessary, makes referrals to state's attorneys or the statewide prosecutor uh, so that voters can have confidence that the voting laws are being enforced and that when they cast a ballot, they know that it's going to be counted fairly and accurately. The law that created this Office of Election Crimes and Security will let the Florida Attorney General step in and directly prosecute someone, even if a local elected state attorney declines to bring charges. What role will you play in coordinating between those two levels of prosecutors when they are making those kinds of decisions? Sure. And just and just one clarification. So uh, if, if, if it's within an individual county, the, the, the referral will be made to the, the local state attorney. If it's multi-jurisdictional, meaning multi-county, that's when the statewide prosecutor under the auspices of the attorney general uh, could step in. But yes, all we're going to be doing is doing the investigation side. We're going to be putting together uh, the, the evidence and then, if appropriate, referring those out um, Director Antonacci has a uh, has a vast experience in this area. As you know, he was supervisor of elections in Broward County, so he will be putting the cases together uh, and then for referral to the prosecutors, if necessary. Have you spoken to any state attorneys or to Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody about the election crimes and security office? 
Um, I have not had direct conversations with them uh, about the specific law. I mean, we're in the process now of putting together the cases. Um, you know, my general counsel or the general counsel in the uh, Department of State um, has been putting these cases together um, for several years. I mean, so this isn't something that's just brand new. It's something we were already doing, but we thought uh, that it would be better to have a dedicated unit because here's what happens. And we have an election every, our major election every two or four years, uh, local prosecutors, local law enforcement. It's not something they deal with on a regular basis. So this was to try to help them uh, investigate these allegations and if they're not legitimate, then we discard them. If they are, then we make referrals. And it won't just be prosecuting people in criminal cases. It will also investigate um, allegations that, uh, that, that our voting rolls uh, need to be cleaned up. So maybe there's a double voter. Uh, Florida is part of a consortium of other states in which we share information with each other so that someone, say, moves from Tennessee to Florida or vice versa, we can tell, uh, we can share information and tell whether that person has voted in both places and then clean up our roles if necessary. Some opponents have said that the Office of Election Crimes and Security is a solution in search of a problem and that voter fraud is so rare that it doesn't justify the kind of resources this office is receiving. How do you respond to that? Uh, once again, nothing undermines confidence in government more than when our laws are not enforced. And, and I've been involved in, in election uh, law and elections uh, for more than 25 years. And uh, there are instances of just from the 2020 election of, of double voting of, uh, people, of, of people that are on the rolls that are, are dead that cast a vote, of felons voting. And then the, uh, the other issue we run into is uh, voter registration and petition fraud. Just recently, two individuals in Duval County were arrested for forging signatures, uh, thousands of signatures on petitions. So this is something that's real. It is something that happens. And uh, you know, we want to make sure that, once again, that our laws are being enforced. So that's why it's necessary and important. Many of the highest profile cases and controversies involve Republicans in Miami and Central Florida, uh, ghost candidates, canvassers changing the party registrations of registered Democrats or people voting twice, for example. How will your office ensure the public that politics and partisan bias won't play a role in the decisions that this new office makes? Sure. Well, it, it's a great question. And I use this example, you know, when, when someone robs a bank, we don't ask them what political party they're in. If they broke the law, commit a crime, we prosecute them. Uh, my office, and I can, I can assure your listeners that we're not going to look at um, you know, partisan uh, you know, intent. If someone breaks Florida's law, that we're, we're, you know, we're going to investigate that and where appropriate make the referrals. Everyone needs to know that if you break our laws, we're going we're gonna to find you and we're going to enforce them. The new state elections agency will partner with sheriff offices to help investigate election violations and answer integrity concerns. What does that partnership look like? How will law enforcement officers carry out the agency's responsibilities? It starts with our partnership with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. So the the new law uh, creates the the Department um, of Election Crimes and Security. So we're the investigative arm under the Secretary of State. And then we have our, uh, our partners in FDLE uh, that will help us. And then where necessary, um, a sheriff could make a referral. Um, you know, most of our referrals, quite frankly, come from the supervisors of election. But nothing would stop a private citizen from making an allegation or for us investigating information on our own. So we have great partnerships with uh, 
with law enforcement, but I want to make clear and, and, and for your listeners, because one of the allegations has been made is that this is some kind of uh, you know special police force or secret police force. It, it is nothing of the kind. It is it is a, it is a unit to investigate allegations to decide which ones which of those allegations aren't warranted and which ones warrant a uh, a, a further investigation. New election laws went in, went into effect this year. How will this new agency impact voting this year? It's a, it's a continuation of what we've already been doing. It's a recognition that um, there, there are always issues in an election. We have 14 million registered voters in Florida. That's a lot of data, a lot of information. My office is constantly putting out uh, alerts and, and information regarding cyber threats. So we work with our federal and local and state partners to ensure that our infrastructure is secure from outside threats, which is something else the office will be working on. So it's not just finding people who have double voted, but ensuring that the system itself is safe and secure, that voters are safe and secure, that election workers and elected officials are safe and secure. So it's all working together so that uh, that this most cherished right as we as Americans have is exercised uh, the way it should be in Florida. Can you give me an example of some of the top or more prevalent crimes you're keeping an eye on? The legislature last uh, last session increased some of the penalties uh, to felonies. I think they did that to to let people know that uh, if you break our laws, there are serious uh, penalties for that. So some of the things, you know, having having multiple ballots, um, interfering or intimidating um, someone who's trying to vote or intimidating an election uh, worker or election official. Um, you know, petition fraud and, and registration fraud. I mean, there's people who go out and collect voter registration applications and then don't turn in the one of the other party. So those are the types of things that are crimes that are committed that, we, uh, that uh, we're looking at. Uh, one of my colleagues at WLRN found last year that a Republican candidate for a special congressional election in South Florida likely cast an illegal ballot in 2020 since he had a felony conviction and the victim told us she never received any restitution payments from him, but the department of state was never able to confirm or deny if restitution payments were made. Will that kind of thing be part of this office and and what it does, you know, diving into court records and uh, different databases? Yes, absolutely. And that is one of our biggest challenges. As I'm sure you're aware, a few years ago, the legislature passed amendment four, so that um, certain people with a felony on their record can have their voting rights restored. One of those issues is payment of uh, fines and restitution. That has been a tremendous challenge uh, for the department to ensure because we're having to get records. You know, if somebody makes an allegation, we want to make sure that before we remove somebody from the rolls, that we are absolutely certain that they're not a legitimate voter. So that takes, a, that takes time. The databases are sometimes incomplete. And so those investigations take a long time, uh, but we're doing everything within our power uh, to make sure that uh, if someone is not voting legally, just like the example you gave, that we're, we're notifying the supervisor because the supervisors that, that remove individuals from the rolls, we can alert them, but it is they who have to remove them. How is the staffing situation for this new Office of Election Crimes and Security? Have people been hired? Are you fielding candidates right now to bring on board? Uh, yes, we are. We are currently in that process. Director Antonacci is hard at work uh, getting the uh, getting the office uh, ramped up, and we're providing him, uh, you know, resources. Uh, the legislature uh, gave us uh, 15 positions. Uh, they were authorized um, by law on on just on July 1st. So 
Uh, we're just a little over a week in, and we are hard at work uh, getting staffed up. Did anything damage or threaten the integrity of Florida elections in 2022? No, we're constantly monitoring threats. Uh, like I said, cybersecurity threats. Um, people are always giving information to the office. We take, uh, you know, we're looking through uh, any and every allegation. But uh, you know, once again, I want uh, I want voters to know and your listeners to know that uh, they can they can rest assured that in Florida their vote's going to be fair, transparent, and legitimate, and that's what the that's how the election's going to go. Secretary Byrd, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Wilkin. I'd be happy to come back anytime. Florida Secretary of State Court Byrd speaking with WLRN's Wilkin Brutus earlier this week. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We want to hear from you. We've got a little bit more than a minute before we have to break, but we're going to go through as many as we can. Ron in East Point, thanks for calling. You are on the radio. Go ahead. Ron, you're uh, turn tuned on the radio. We can try to get you on the phone real quick. Go ahead, Ron. Hello, how are you doing? Good, go ahead. I'm up against the clock. I got about 45 seconds. I want to hear from you. Anyway, uh, I'm just listening to the show, and uh, though I agree with a lot of these uh, sentiments toward these, um, let's say, radical conservative groups, I also have no more uh, agreement with radical left uh, extremist groups. Um, My issue is... uh, both of these groups have the right to express their views. They both have a right of freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just seems to me that your radio show comes down against the ones on the right a lot harder than it does on the left. And I'm kind of trying to figure out why that is. Um, while the right, uh, this, this January 6th thing was insane, but at the same time, The left promotes our country being an open border country where we're told we're four and a half million houses short of housing the population Mm -hmm. that is here. Immigration is supposed to help the country. And how is that helping the country when there's homeless people, not enough houses to live in? Ron, I apologize for interrupting. I can't stop the clock here, so and we're up against it. But I appreciate you adding your voice, because that's why I say we've got one phone number for everybody across Florida here on the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can visit 125 stores throughout Florida or shop online at abcfws.com. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup here on Florida Public Radio. I'm Tom Hudson in Miami. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. Well, Florida, we know, as a place of extremes, Heat, humidity, storms, traffic, and high prices. Yeah, inflation is actually higher here than the country overall. Right now on the show, we want to hear from you. How are you dealing with the high price of gas, groceries, rent? Give us a call, 305-995-1800, or tweet us at Florida Roundup. As we welcome Victor Klar, Associate Professor of Economics at Florida Gulf Coast University. Professor, good to be with you. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So inflation's bad everywhere, but why is Florida's rate higher than the national average? Inflation lately has been brutal everywhere. And if you think about what happened with consumer price inflation in June, it was driven almost exclusively by three categories that hit every family, shelter, food, and gasoline. 
And one of those is especially high in Florida, and I think we all know that it's shelter. If you're a resident of Florida anywhere right now, and you are not lucky enough to have a locked-in fixed mortgage payment at an interest rate you negotiated that was extremely low a couple of years ago, your rent is going up if it hasn't gone up already. So these, these increases, food, shelter, um, food, shelter, and gasoline, they hit every family, but they hit hardest of families who have the least discretionary income to work with. Sure. And and this, even though uh, gas prices are actually a little lower here than the rest of the country, but housing is more than making up for that, it sounds like. Yeah, it's it's extremely difficult to make ends meet right now. And housing is a very significant part of a real household budget. And it's also a fairly significant weight, weighted category in the consumer price index. So when we get numbers that have been revised for different cities in Florida, you see that, that not only is residential housing up, but it's up especially here in Florida. I guess it's good news, bad news. The good news is people want to be here. And in many ways, Florida is better positioned to endure inflation and even a possible recession if that's where we're headed than lots of states. So that's the good news. The bad news is there's lots of competition for housing right now. And if your rent hasn't already gone up in the last 12 months, it's probably going to go up for you fairly quickly. And what can be done about that? What are the pressures on the Florida housing market? Uh, Skyrocketing rents, higher interest rates. Uh, Could the state be doing a little more? Is there anything they could be doing to give people some relief? When you see prices rise of something like housing, sometimes it's because that resource is genuinely scarce. But in some cities in Florida, we create what I like to think of as artificial scarcity. We have minimum lot sizes, and we have neighborhoods where it's illegal to build a multifamily dwelling. And multifamily dwellings are what we need a lot more of all over Florida, especially to help out working class families right now. So if we could reduce regulations, which I know in many cases have good intentions, if we could reduce some of those restrictions so that we get even more housing and especially more housing that's affordable for young families, that would be a great thing. And that would reduce a lot of price pressure. Now, nationally, the, the June inflation rate across the U.S. was 9.1 percent in the southeast, more broadly, 9.8 percent in Miami, 10.6 percent. Is South Florida getting hit the hardest when it comes to inflation, Victor, or is the pain spread all over the state? The pain is spread all over the state, but you're right. In the particular cities that you've mentioned, the price pressure is hitting even harder. And if you're, again, if you're a young family, it's really difficult to pay those three bills that everybody's got to pay. Gasoline and housing and food. Those are things that you can Mm -hmm. cut a little bit on, but you can't cut significantly on. How are people responding? You know, we hear a lot of stories about people doubling up, a lot of people in one small apartment. Uh, You know, people are trying to get by any way they can. Yeah, all I have, I'm an economist, so I'll talk in terms of both data and anecdotes because I know there's a difference there. Mm -hmm. My anecdotal evidence is lots of people are doing what they need to do to find ways to share costs. And so I think we're seeing a lot more subletting Um, A lot more people, many more people are taking on roommates because when they see what their new annual rent will be on their apartment, 
they're forced into finding a way to make things work because, as you pointed out, over the last year or so, we've had roughly uh, 10% or so inflation rate in some of the hottest markets in South Florida. And if there's a 10% annual inflation rate, that means it requires 10% more money to pay the same bills that you used to pay. And that money has to come from somewhere. And if you can't find 10% more money, then you have to find a way to reduce what your out-of-pocket was accordingly. There's been talk about rolling back the state gas tax for a few weeks. That probably wouldn't do a whole lot to help people. Uh, Wages are up in general, but how much is that helping? On balance, even though money wages are up, money wages need to rise faster than inflation in order for people to gain ground. And they need to rise at the same rate as inflation to not lose any ground. And even though money wages are up, and this is true in most markets in Florida, they're not rising at a rate that's keeping pace with inflation. So one of my hopes is that the Federal Reserve in its meeting this coming week will act a little more aggressively where interest rates are concerned. Nobody likes higher interest rates. But if the trade-off is inflation that continues to rise rapidly, then it might be worthwhile to try to get inflation under control. You're listening to the Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. We're talking about uh, how inflation is hotter in Florida than the United States. And we want to hear from you, Floridians. How are you dealing with higher rent costs, mortgage costs, housing, transportation, gasoline, groceries, eggs? You name it here. 305-995-1800. In Tampa, Flavi is uh, listening in. Go ahead. You're on the radio. Thanks for calling. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, I'm calling today just to talk about, you know, the way that inflation has affected me and my family personally. I know that everyone in the state of Florida and around the country is feeling it, but it's just crazy. I mean, we're looking for a place to rent right now, and it is insane the difference just from a year ago of trying to find a place. It's it's so much more expensive, and wages haven't changed, I think, to the same degree that um, rent has changed. So it's really, really hard to find that money somewhere else. And another place that I've been especially feeling the inflation is uh, shopping for food, specifically Publix. I can't walk out of there without spending at least $100, and I'm not getting any more food than I used to. You know, it's it's, it's crazy. I I find that it's been the worst there. And a little tip for everybody who's listening, Trader Joe's, somehow they've been (laughs) keeping the inflation out of their items, and so it's been a lot cheaper to shop there. Uh, Flavio, appreciate you sharing that tip and, uh, boy, that experience in Tampa, looking for a new place to live and dealing with the, the groceries here. Victor, uh, she's putting voice to exactly the concerns that you spoke about a moment ago and, and your hope for maybe stronger reaction, stronger medicine from the Federal Reserve in the form of higher interest rates. What's the threat, though, to the strong housing market in Florida that's so important to our communities if mortgage and borrowing rates are to go even higher? Well, we're in an interesting time where even though housing is more expensive, especially the rental market, part of the reason for that is how high housing prices are and how little inventory there is across South Florida in general, whether it's the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic side. So if we had fewer bidding wars for residential housing, then that might reduce the demand in that market. 
and as a consequence, uh, drive down prices overall for mm -hmm. all kinds of housing. Yeah. Normally, when when residential home prices go up, rental prices move along with them because that's those are the two options that households have. You can buy or you can rent. Our time on the radio is deflating pretty quickly here, but we want to hear from <laughs> Daniela in Tallahassee. That was a bad economics joke. Daniela, go ahead. You're on the radio. It's the I dismal know. science. Indeed. I live in Florida, and it's been really, really difficult to the point where I have a full bachelor's degree in STEM. It was impossible to pay um, the current prices. The grocery stores is just crazy. Eggs are insanely expensive to the point where I chose to move out of the state. I will be leaving Florida at the end of July after living here for 10 years now. And it's just insane. It's, I, we can't compete with the wages of people coming from out of the state. So sadly, I'm going to have to go. Mm, I'm so sorry to hear that, Daniela. You know, uh, lots of people are moving to Florida, Victor, but there are those who have also decided it's not right for them. They're leaving. How are you tracking that? Yeah, it's 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 it, it's definitely a glass half full. We have more people who are interested in joining us than the people who are leaving. But again, for working families in particular, inflation is a burden and it creates lots of uncertainty for young working families. So I understand if people who are in Florida and love Florida and want to be part of what we're doing here feel like they need to move to another market where in particular things like homeowners insurance and rental prices are lower than they happen to be here right now. Than they have been here. Victor Clark, Florida Gulf Coast University, thanks for tuning in and being with us. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everyone. The Florida Roundup produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz, Natu Choi, and Leslie Avaye are producers. Catherine Hobbs is associate producer. WLRN's Director of Radio Operations and our technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels, Josh Torres, and Miriam Ganis. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music is provided by Miami Jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hudson. And I'm Melissa Ross. We'll be back next Friday at noon. Support for the Florida Roundup comes from ABC Fine Wine and Spirits, family-owned and operated since 1936. Guests can shop any of ABC's 125 Florida stores and get curbside service through abcfws.com.